Jessica Lopez. Jessica Lopez. And my name is Christian Solis, by the way. And we are going to talk about animal welfare and things related to animal welfare in our podcast. So, um, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Um, we're going to start off with uh, our intro, so that way you just don't think we're some kind of crazy, just... Feeling like our opinions are out there. Ah, people, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of those uh, type of podcasts out there, though. Yeah. So. Yes, I promise. Um, so my name, if so, I'm Jessica, and I have been in the veterinary field uh, for the last 19 years. Uh, I worked uh, originally. I started out in general practice. I was a kennel tech. And then um, I am now the executive director of the Paw Mission, and I work exclusively now in animal welfare, and it encompasses both animal rescue as well as access to care services like wellness clinics and spay and neuter. Um, so it's I've been in this field for a very long time, um, and animal welfare is really you know just a large piece of my heart and. Um, and I really do feel strongly about a lot of the topics that we're going to be talking about um, on the podcast. Yeah, and then my name is Christian Solis, and I've been in mostly the rescue world, which is a little bit different uh, than the animal welfare world, uh, even though they do cross a lot of the same spaces. Um, and I've been in, uh, doing rescue for about seven years. Um, uh, I've always been an animal lover. You know, I went to school... Uh, for biology and then zoology and then you know I ended up switching career paths but um, I've always been interested in animals and um, you know I've worked with some really really great organizations as um, you know adoption coordinator uh, we've done um, you know I've helped some organizations get started and uh, come off the ground and TNR a lot, Trap New to Return. Um, so I've seen some crazy stuff too, um, but more from the perspective of the rescue side, which is a little bit different than the animal welfare and medical side of it. So um, it'll be really cool to see, you know, how our experiences cross and um, and into the same space and how you know the different perspectives kind of. Um, shape the way that uh, the space is, is you know created yeah so. and just how we view things I think it's really interesting that so many people could be in this field and care so much about animals but based on how they you know their position came to fruition how they're into this you know field like it really does shape our views on what on what should happen going forward. What are the problems that we're seeing? Um, a, a veterinarian will have a completely different perspective than somebody like a TNR person. Like the the views are going to be varied, and I can appreciate that. You know, we're never going to fix anything if we can't have as many solutions and people that are um, work working collectively together to figure out what 
and how we can fix things. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things that we bring to the table, Jessica and I, is <laughs> we tend to see things very objectively and can kind of put ourselves in other people's shoes or, or kind of uh, see other people's perspective and um, kind of uh, appreciate that and, um, you know, shape uh, opinions based on, um, you know, not only our, our experiences, but the, the perspective of other people. So, um, it'll be really cool to see how throughout our whole careers here with animals, we've, I know my, my perspectives changed a lot, even, you know, in the last two years, uh, post pandemic, you know? So, um, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about all these topics and, you know, we'll have some really great guests on um, to see their perspective because I love talking to people and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm always the shy one in the room, like listening to everybody else, not because I don't have anything to say, but because I like to learn uh, from other people's points of view. So um, thank you for, for taking us uh, on and, you know joining us on this journey yeah thanks for um coming and listening to our perspective i think that um you know one of the first first couple of topics that we're going to go over is um standard of care access to care and standard of care i think is always varied because we have this you know big you know chasm between shelters uh rescues and then the public perceptions of what is standard of care and Unfortunately, you know, there is such a, you know, like a tangible difference between the three. And um, instead of us often working together, which is what the ideal is, um, there are times when shelters can be frustrated with rescues and rescues frustrated with shelters and then rescues frustrated with owners. And at the end of the day, like that frustration, unless it could become, um, you know, productive and like have actual outcomes from it it's just you know creating more friction between the groups and so standard of care is a big one um having worked in veterinary medicine um you know there's uh vets and technicians always taught about this the gold standard of care and um for for animal hospitals in particular that means the best case scenario of what clients should be doing for their pet in the case of like let's say like a a dog with an ear infection like best case scenario you have cytologies done you have the ear cleaning the rechecks and all of this and then you have to get and be a little bit more realistic maybe an ear cleaning isn't the best example but like uh, maybe mass removals so mass removals you want a cytology at first, make sure, you know, do a fine needle aspirate, make sure that what the tumor is, you're going to be able to remove it, get good margins, and see what it is. Um, and then you want to make sure your rechecks, depending on the age of the dog or cat, you want to do x-rays to see if it is cancerous, if it has metastasized, then you need blood work. And so when you start going onto this vein of standard of the gold standard of care, um, just 
by what it is, you know, we're leaving out a lot of the population that has disposable income that could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, and I also, I, I think it's, you know, looking at it from the rescue perspective, right? A lot of the times when you get involved in a situation uh, in rescue, um, it's not because everything was peachy and, mm-hmm. and going well, and it's not, um, and it tends to be a little bit more extreme. So emotions really, really run high. Um, uh, there really is no like standard of care in rescue per se. It's more of like what people think should be done. Yeah. Right. And there's people that are a little more extreme than others. There's people from different backgrounds that have access to different, uh, different things that other people may just not have access to, you know, coming from, uh, the Latinx community and uh, coming from, you know, um, really poor background, um, you know, in a lot of underserved communities. So there really is not a lot of access to a lot of things. And um, a lot of it has to do with education. A lot of it has to do with resources. Um, but when you encounter something in rescue, um, I think the medical side of it is very factual based on what you can do, what's realistic as far as getting a, a positive outcome. And the rescue side is more of how can we save this animal? Like, how can we get it out of this perceived terrible situation? Um, but it really is based on somebody's perception of what the care should be, not really, you know, going factual based um assessments of the situation right yeah there's a lot more emotion involved when you're dealing with rescues and i will be one i never thought i would be in a position where i we run a part of our services that we offer is we do rescue we do um intake cats uh you know we target very specific groups uh the most euthanized in shelters so you know, we do take in tons of ferals, we uh, neonatal kittens, anything under two pounds, we take in moms and babies of that of neonatals, um, and medical dogs and cats. So while we are not, you know, as maybe superficial as some rescues can be, or as passionate about a certain group of animals, maybe is a better phrase. Um, you know, there there is a lot more emotion involved with rescue. Like I don't. Uh, when I used to work in private practice and general practice and, you know, especially in all that, I hated when rescues would come in Yeah. because it was so much drama. It was tears. It was crying. It was, it was, and you know, it was usually these older white people, usually white ladies came in and it was a sob story for this animal and they couldn't pay for this and they couldn't pay for that. But then these horrible owners that can't afford it, and so there's to me there's always you know a little bit of hypocrisy when you're when you deal with some rescues because owners aren't worthy of having a pet if they can't afford things. Well, and then you also look at who can become a rescue. Yeah, really, like anybody, anybody calls himself a rescue mm-hmm. nowadays. Like, oh, I saved two kittens, I'm a rescue. Like, yeah. you know, I have six fosters that I picked up, but I can't afford them, so I'm a rescue now. Yeah, you know, so it's. It really, um, I think, and again, I always try to keep an objective view of people 
and I, I try to see the good intentions. Everybody does this with uh, a passion for, uh, for the animals and out of a good place in their heart, uh, but not necessarily always following through with um, the best uh, mode of doing things, you know. Um, and, and then also, like, a lot of people have very extreme views on how pets should be cared because they come from different, you know, backgrounds where, you know, going to the veterinarian is, is not a luxury for, for some, some people that are out there rescuing. It's something that they just did with their pets. But, again, coming from the, you know, underserved, low-income, Latin community, um, that's not something that necessarily is accessible to everybody that, you know, owns a pet. Like, I know for, for me, when, you know, I, I've had pets before in the past, going in and even just getting an exam and, and $200 for an exam in medicine, that was a lot for me. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, you know, we were barely scraping by. And we loved our pets dearly. Um, so it wasn't that we were like mistreating them or, or anything like that. We just, you know, couldn't afford to take the vet every time our cat got the sniffles, yeah. uh, to get them checked out, you know? And you know, um, what's it, so I was part of, um, uh, my daughter's PTA and one, the PTA, I guess she was like the president's PTA of like, uh, California and uh, she said something at a conference that really resonated with me to this day. And she said that there is a very fine line uh, between being an advocate and being an adversary. And, like, and, and you know, she was specifically talking about being um, part of the PTA and working with teachers and, the admin, and, like, your school administration and working together to have a cohesive team. But um, what I took it as is that there are often times when rescues can can deem themselves the advocate of this pet where they are so forceful that they can become the adversary. And that in itself, I think, is dangerous because, you know, unfortunately, like I had dealt with a lot of rescues like that in the time that I worked at practices where we worked with the public. And that really did shape a lot of my views with rescues. And, and even to this day, like we, I work and partner with other rescues, but there are some that I just don't want to work with that. I'm not, I I don't want the drama that they can create. And unfortunately I feel like that also puts, um, animals at a disservice because they're not getting, you know, the care that they need or maybe the partnerships that we can create um, to create a better outcome for the pet. And so I think, I think it's, you know, very interesting that people are, are, that they want to come in as advocates and yet they don't realize that they can quickly become adversaries to the people that they need to be able to partner with. Right. And I, and I think one of the biggest, um, I think downfalls with rescues is not being, not really knowing uh, where the people or how the the people stand in in the area where they're rescuing, right? Because a lot of times 
you're not seeing rescues coming to like Beverly Hills and all these, you know, suburban areas where rich people live. It's more like we're rescuing from poor people because they can't afford it, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with standard of care that's adequate to the people that live there and it's it has to do with the culture sometimes i know my mom like I, you know and that's actually i don't think it's standard of care i think at that point it becomes access to care yeah because there has to be a point in which we all understand that money still plays a huge part in animal welfare that if you are a poor person you are looked at differently than you are a rich white person or just a rich person in general. Yeah. Like the resources that you're able to obtain is significantly different. The care that you receive is significantly different. The care that your pets receive is significantly different. And I think that that's, I think that's a problem that we have in veterinary medicine because unlike human med medicine, you know, we have insurance that is able to, you know, even even though, you know, we have a whole bunch of, you know, intersectional issues that um, permeate our, you know, our um, field, like income, race, um, gender identity, like all of that is that intersectionality bleeds into animal welfare. And the problem that we have is we don't have the access to insurance like human medicine does, and I, I don't think that we should in general because I think we can do it, but the problem is now that even people who can make a modest income and are able to afford some veterinary care, they're not able to still put on or accept that gold standard of care. Like I would tell people when I used to work in emergency and critical care, um, as a technician, I would tell people, you need to at least save 1500 to $2,000 per pet. Because what if your pet gets hit by a car? That's a fifteen dollars to $2,000 just overnight stay at a specialty practice. Like, yeah. that is that is money. And not a lot of people have that just hanging around. And, yeah. and back then, I was so young and so... Uh, I was very privileged. My family was uh, middle income, and so we weren't... You know, we weren't super rich, but we weren't super poor. At least I don't remember being poor. Um, and But we couldn't afford veterinary care. Like, that was beyond our means. My parents were able to feed and clothe us. We had There was three uh, children in our family, and my mom and dad. And their, the money that they made was able to sustain our family, but not our pets. Like, And, and so, you know, there's a whole bunch of you know, issues that I see in general, but, um, it's going to be interesting to see how the stark differences, um, that are between, you know, rescue shelters and the privately owned animals, like how we can rec reconcile that and, you know, create ideally more animals get access to care because that's what people want. Like I totally believe Emancipet has this really great kind of vision mission or company statement and it's that they believe and it's not verbatim but uh essentially they believe that every human every pet owner would do the best for their pet given the information that they have and the means that they have and when i started believing that 
Like that really changed my time in animal welfare because I, once you see it that way, I think that you give grace to a lot more people and you're not as stringent about what you believe needs to be done. Like I couldn't judge people anymore because it's true. Like my parents wouldn't be able to afford a $1,500 pet bill and yet I'm over here getting frustrated with people in the emergency hospital because they can't afford it. Like, yeah, those, they could be like my parents and not afford it. So yeah, it's crazy. And again, it's just always amazes me how the expectation from somebody that has absolutely no clue on the background of the person of what that person's going through or what, uh, what resources are available to that person can come in and say they're rescuing this pet from said person um, just because it's not meeting the gold standard of care or um, being treated as, you know, somebody in the hills uh, would mm-hmm. treat their pets, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, there's a lot of different cultures and uh, acceptable things in different cultures that when you come to the United States, it's completely different, like, are viewed completely different. And even within the United States, there's a lot of different um, groups that treat their pets completely different, you know what I mean? So um, we, I think live in a especially here in California diverse enough communities that you know kind of stripping away people's you know I guess uh perception of what is acceptable for for care um from where they come from and imposing what we deem acceptable here in the United States um, it's kind of doing a disservice to um, to a lot of uh, the communities. You're basically taking away their community identity and imposing a more Anglo uh, type of, of uh, restrictions on what is considered acceptable, right? So I know, like, you know, my my mom and my dad always talk about having pets in 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 Ecuador and Chile and, you know, oh, el gatito, le vamos a dar leche, or le damos mm. lechita, or, <laughs> you know, um, there be indoor-outdoor cats and things like that. And even one of the things that really kind of struck me recently was um, when we were at, uh, we recently went to a conference out in um, New Orleans, and one of the speakers was talking about um how she was Native American, um, Native, uh, Indigenous, and um, she was talking about how in the reservation, the reservation dogs, they're not looked at as stray dogs or anything. They're looked at as, you know, who gave us permission to own the pets in the first place, right? Who put us in charge of owning pets? And they look at, everybody looks at that dog or that cat as part of the community of, of, of pets so it just really kind of puts into perspective like how did we get to like own pets that are supposed to be yeah out in the wild like you know what i mean so yeah um, like how the and and like so the way i grew up like we never had solely indoor cats (coughs) and part of that was because we couldn't afford like litter and litter pans and like it, it was 
an extra cost. And back, like, now that I think of it, you know, like, like that, it's really has shaped how we live. And in a lot of Latino cultures, uh, I can specifically say, like, we're, I'm Mexican and my dad, we always had outdoor dogs only. We never had dogs inside. Like, never, never. And we loved our dogs. Like, we would go outside. We'd have barbecues outside. The dogs are hanging out with us. You know, they were great dogs. We would take them on walks. But they were solely outdoor dogs. And our cats were always indoor-outdoor. They would come in. They would go out. Uh, we'd have... Uh, they'd poop outside in the yard. And we've. I've never... I, I never thought that that was wrong until I started working in animal rescue. And then that when I first started, I was like, man, you guys are super judgy, dude. Like I've had, um, I have cats currently, uh, when I became an adult and I moved out, um, I got my cats and my oldest one, she is 14 and I saved her from, um, somebody threw a box of kittens in our trash at the emergency hospital I worked at and I had taken out the trash and I heard the kittens, so I brought them in. And so Marcel is, she's 14 now. Um, and she has been an indoor, outdoor cat her whole life. Like we've never solely kept her in. Um, whenever we move, we do have a transition period that has worked for us. Um, and then my other cat is Pretty Bell. And Pretty Bell is now seven or eight years old. And the same thing. She's always been indoor, outdoor. Uh, we've lived from the suburbs and now we live out here in Yukaipa and completely different areas but I've never worried about them significantly because I, I feel like if you transition them well and you have quasi smart cats uh, like they're not going to get in like they're fixed they're up to date on vaccines like they're not going to go and stray because they don't need to like they're not looking for anything and um, there is a lot of judgment out there about people who have indoor outdoor cats and there are rescues that absolutely will not adopt out to indoor outdoor cats. And I am a little bit on, the, like, I want people who have indoor outdoor pets to be um, a little bit more forthright with how they transition the cats. Because I do think it is dangerous for some cats. Like, I would not recommend, and our general rule of thumb is we don't put kittens outside. Like, we, we just recently introduced a kitten uh, maybe like five or six months ago into our house. And she didn't start going outside till very recently. And I think she's now almost a year, if not already a year. Um, and probably a couple of months ago is when we first started letting her go out. And it was just during the day. It was when we were home. And she was just exploring. And now she's really good about coming in and out. like, And she's on top of things. like She claws at the door, scratches the door when it's time for her to come in. And uh, the same when she wants to go out. And what I have found is a lot of people aren't open or they will, you know, fib a little bit on the application because, you know, that happens. People know um, that rescues are extremely difficult. So I appreciate when people are like, no, we're going to have an indoor-outdoor cat. I'm like, okay, well, how are you going to do this? Like, have you done it before? Are you an experienced indoor-outdoor cat owner? Like, what are your plans? Like, how is this all going to work? Let me match the right cat for you. Like, those people, if they've never done it, I'm not necessarily going to give them, like, a two-month-old kitten. Like, it takes time, friend. Like, how are you going to do it? And so I think, you know, having conversations with people and trying not to pass judgment on them, I think is really important. Like, 
Yeah, and it's crazy uh, coming from the rescue world and seeing so many cats that, you know, legitimately are in poor situations or, you know, abused or left behind. And, or you hear so many stories of them getting eaten by the coyotes and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, it, it makes it difficult not to have that type of judgment because you see it. But at the same time, it's like you really don't know what what happened in that situation. Or it's such a, in the grand scheme of things, with looking at so many cats being adopted, like it's such a small percentage of cats that actually get hurt or get put back in, in a bad situation. That well, well, I would even say, you know, I would go so far as to say that, you know, People build this up into their head. Like, absolutely. And I, I feel like... Um, and you come from TNR, so I think TNR has also helped shape your mind. <laughs> and part, and I think part of that is that you see the animals that aren't doing well outside. And the ones that are running rampant, because you have to TNR them. But how many of those animals probably have... Like, the ones that have been fixed already, and I don't know if you know how many of the ones that you've TNR'd that have been fixed, but, like, my cats have never been trapped because they are already fixed. They're not going into somebody's random yard and trying to eat food and stuff. And, like, I think that rescues... Uh, I think what rescues do, a lot of rescues, and I won't say all of them, but a lot of them open up to people lying to them in general. And then when people lie to them, you can't give them the right information on how to be successful. Oh, absolutely. And it's just, it's crazy that, that we bring this up because one of the, I, I did an adoption at one of our adoption centers here recently, just by happenstance. I was coming in to clean uh, the enclosure because, you know, one of our volunteers um, wasn't able to come in. So, I'm, you know, I'm down the street from there. I came in and just as I was coming in, we had one kitten there, um, and uh, the gentleman's like, oh, I've been looking for a cat, like, for weeks now. And I've reached out a couple of rescues, and the lady was so weird. She made me fill out, like, seven pages of questionnaires. And then she was super intimidating, and she said, you know, are you going to keep this cat inside out, indoor, outdoor? And she's like, I panicked, and I said yes, because I thought that's what she wanted to hear. But I don't have... A big big yard to, to have my cat go outside plus it's all dirt so I probably just keep them indoors uh, but I thought she wanted me to say yes to indoor outdoor and then she said after filling out all that that she wanted to come check my house and then that she wanted to and then when I told her that I was gonna do indoor outdoor she said that she wasn't gonna adopt to me anymore because you I would be putting the cat in danger and she's like I really never I really never intended to put the cat outside like I would much rather keep them inside it's much better for 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 the cat and this is what's going to work for us but i just panicked because she was asking me all these questions and really grilling me it was really not an experience that i wanted to to continue so i'm like you know what i'm trying to give this cat a home and he's like i've i've bought bulldogs all the time from from breeders but we decided to go with a cat this time because we're just not we don't have the time for dogs anymore, and my mom wants to 
to take care of the cat and my daughter's really into cats now and I wanted to rescue a cat since we bought from breeders so much and um, now I, I it just kind of made it seem like why would I want to go through a rescue if they're going to give me all this all this stuff you know and I was and, and it just kind of made me feel like I've been in that position where I've grilled people and done home checks for animals that we were going to go adopt out and told them like no because you're going to put them in outside um you know and we would deny people all the time like because oh no this red flag on the application like they're not going to feed good cats or they don't have a veterinarian that they can go to what if it gets sick and then they're going to be struggling to find a veterinarian or what Mm. they can't afford it and all this time you know now looking at it from a different perspective uh just kind of seeing like we could have had all these pets in in a home and given people the correct information like okay you don't have a veterinarian guess what this is a veterinarian that's in your area that's affordable you should take them here or oh you don't have you know a good a good uh uh access to good food well you know this is an alternative food that you can get for for this cat that's still just as nutritious but maybe you know, not as, not your $60 bag of kibble that, you know, yeah. the rescue expects you to get every, every two weeks, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, I think people really need to be able to make good choice, like given the opportunity to make choices that benefit their family, like truthfully, like would I rather see an indoor outdoor cat than a cat that gets returned to me because somebody's allergic because there's too much pet dander? Like, Yeah. Like, and I can guarantee you, I saw, well, I saw this post on Facebook on one of the um, shelter directors page and it said that uh, to the gist of like, I bet that um, the dog would much rather be in the yard waiting for you to get home than euthanized at the shelter. And, and, and that's like, at the end of the day, you know, whether or not you agree with the policies that we have in place and like just the end of the day it's about saving animals lives it's about creating a relationship between pet owners and a relationship that they're able to be like hey i think something's going on i don't know what to do can you help me can you give me information becoming a resource rather than just a transactional yes like i would love if adopters are like hey i totally forgot what you said about this what kind of food do you recommend and i would tell you that if i didn't have access to science diet every day i would pick a food that i can get at a vons or at a grocery store because when i forget food and i always do and if a pet smart or pet co is closed i want to be able to access food that i routinely feed and if there's nothing wrong with that and i think those are still all viable options but not stigmatizing people for not spending 60 to 80 bucks on a bag of food. Like, yeah. at all. Like, I have two Great Danes, and I feed a pretty, like, middle ground dog food, and I still spend about $260 a month on their food. And not a lot of people are able to spend that much. They would just be getting the $40 pedigree bag for 50 pounds or whatever. Yeah. And that is, they're eating, they're happy, they are alive, they're in a home that's worth it. Absolutely, and and it goes back to ally versus advocate, right? Mm-hmm. Like, or or advocate versus adversary, right? Yeah. So, 
you know, we put all these restrictions, especially in the rescue community, we scream at the top of our lungs that there's so many dogs and cats being euthanized in the shelter and that we're always full and that there's never enough fosters and there's never enough uh, people to adopt and we're not going to adopt our way out of this situation yet an adopter or somebody coming in to, you know, that is willing to take in one of these pets. And we build so many roadblocks for them mm-hmm. to, to adopt because they have to be in a perfect situation because they are already abandoned in the streets and mm-hmm. we don't want them in that same situation again. That you basically create the same problem and make it worse. You're not adopting these pets out. You don't have enough fosters. The cats are still getting euthanized at the shelter. And this person that wanted to adopt from you and you know, possibly make a donation. And now it's going to a breeder to adopt from a breeder because guess what? It's a transaction for them, right? Yeah. They're going to get the money, pay for their cat, and now they have a pet, which is what they wanted in the first place. Yeah. So. And you know what I have found is, you know, that there are different types of people. And I hate, you know, classifying people because everybody can be whatever they want to be. But in my opinion, there are two types of rescuers. The rescuer that is looking to open adoptions and to get animals into homes and match them. Like, those are, I feel, much more progressive. And then there's these old school, you know, older people, probably like in their 60s, that are very, very set in their ways. And they're not open to change. And they believe that people need to have a certain amount of money in their bank account. There was one lady that... um, I recently heard that really got me riled up and she was extremely proud that she denied 50% of applications and it boggles my mind for a variety of reasons but the main one is because every kennel that you have every foster home that you have available that you're not utilizing because you can't adopt them out faster is a missed opportunity for you to to save another life every single one and it boggles my mind that that person was so proud that they denied so many people when what I heard was that they are so picky to the point where, you know, just there's going to, they're unicorn adopters. She was like, well, they can't be home or they can't be away from the house for more than six hours. They can't be left outdoors, the animal unattended. They can't do this. They can't do that. And we try, we ask them that they make at least 75000 a year. And I was like, that's insane. That's so crazy. Like, I'm sorry. Any person who works a full-time job, like, that doesn't work from home is working at least eight hours. At, at least. At least. And that's not even counting commuting time yes, or, or errands or like, anything. Yeah. Like, man, like, like, I would never be able to. Like, I am gone sometimes, like... 16 17 hours in a day and then i come home and my my dogs are like hello dude and i'm like sorry come inside do i know you i know i'm like i'm sorry i'm here i'm here (laughs) and like and you know i wish i wish that rescues would think that way but a lot of it unfortunately is kind of you know giving themselves a pat on the back like they're not in it to save as many animals. They are in it. And they'll always say, you know, it's about quality versus quantity. And I've had multiple conversations about it with these. Like, I'd want them to go to quality owners. I want them to go to an owner. Are you going to feed the animal? Absolutely. Are you going to take care of it? Yes. Are you going to love it? Yes. That is a good enough owner for me. And I really do believe that people, when they 
get asked questions at the adoption like are you what like what type of household are you looking if you're able to match this pet better to the owners like and you give them as much information as you can I, I truly believe that owners and the new pet parents are going to make good choices like, and I think it's it's really again for me now with you know the the mindset that I have and, and the perspective that I've been able to gain from going from extreme crazy rescue TNR person to more of an open like you know creating more access and and being able to 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 help more pets is is really is this is this pet going to be safe or is it going to be in the shelter being euthanized like you know yeah. it's yeah, it's, that's still a harsh reality is that animals... And that, moving, moving, really moving past just being a transactional thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, anybody can, can have a pet, adopt it out and say, okay, I wipe my hands, put a tally mark on my saved animals mm-hmm. and be done with it. But when it comes down to, you know, following up or being approachable enough where this person's going to see you not just as a person that they got this cat from but seeing you as a resource for information mm-hmm. or a resource for finding a veterinarian or for, for pet care or like, for pet care even. how how can how how can the rescue the shelter be a resource to the these owners and the first step is by not judging everybody yep. because I, i'm not going to go to somebody that gives me attitude about my beliefs and like and this I feel like this is a great segue because the other part is you know it's not just access to care but the standard of care and and we touched about touched on it a little bit but I feel like there are some groups that are so judgmental about owners and so frustrated with owners that they also don't realize like the actual numbers I believe that the AVMA um, put out uh, I think it was out in 2020, or maybe a little bit before that, but, um, excuse me, it was 189 million animals inside homes um, that went to the veterinarian, and so we know that there was 189 million animals inside homes throughout the U.S. And inside animal shelters, there is between 1 to 2 million animals that are, you know, going in and, and not making it out alive. And when you think about it at that scope, so many rescues have their panties in a bunch, so to speak, because there's not enough homes for those animals. And yet, it's not every single owner. It's not every single person that is abandoning these animals. It seems like a lot, just like if you went to a neurologist, uh, the neurologist sees everybody gets a brain, like an MRI, like everybody, because that's neurology. When you work in animal welfare and animal rescue, you see these animals because that's the demographic that you're helping. Those are the animals and the people that you're helping. And I think that they get so tunnel vision that they're not also seeing the big picture. That it's not necessarily every single animal. It's about 1-2% to of animals in the U.S. that end up in animal shelters. 1-2%. to And yet, 
rescues make it sound as if we are absolutely drowning in animals yeah. and every single animal in the shelter is abused every single animal inside the shelter is it gets euthanized at yes. the door and it's and it's you know right now you know right now it's kind of hard uh, because a lot of rescues, a lot of shelters are extremely full, and there is more euthanasia now than there was in um, before the pandemic. But in, that's for a myriad of reasons. It's not just because of owner surrenders. It is because spay and neuter was on hold during COVID. Like when the pandemic hit, like the first year, most especially or most um, spay and neuter clinics slowed down tremendously if they did it because. The pandemic was so serious about PPE that gloves and masks, surgical masks were all on hold until human hospitals could get it. And then the excess would be given to veterinary hospitals. And then for a while, only veterinary hospitals that had emergent non-elective procedures, which Bayonetor still is an elective procedure, were able to get that PPE. So, you know, there was a lot of issues before that. Like we have built our own you know, our own problem. Like this pandemic didn't help anybody. And, you know, yeah, we we're super full right well, now. One of the things that I think it did do though with shelters is it did allow them to become more of a resource based organizations than just a drop off your pets here. They're a lot more selective on, on, what intake uh, gets done at the shelters and there's a lot more organizations. They've partnered up a lot with other organizations that can't intake adoptable mm-hmm. pets so that they don't have that problem. I think that was, from my perspective, one of the best things that came out of the, uh, or one of the good things that came out of the pandemic was that shift from, you know, the shelter taking basically anything mm-hmm. to now, you know, if it's healthy and able to be on its own, like either put it back where you found it mm-hmm. because it's probably doing okay. Stop stealing animals. <laughs> Stop stealing animals. Yes. Or, you know, um, foster it. We'll mm-hmm. give you resources for that. There's organizations that'll help you with mm-hmm. the fostering or, you know, we'll adopt that. And they're doing a lot more. You see shelters like, especially the shelter near me, Baldwin Park Shelter, um, which was one of the most infamous, like, oh, high euthanasia shelters. Like, I do photos for for them. And, yes, they, they still do have, you know, euthanasia because it's part of, it's just part of what happens mm-hmm. at a shelter. But every time I go in, there's no cats there to ever take photos of because they're all adopted out or go they go through... Um, you know, other organizations that, that pull them out. And a lot of the dogs that, that are in there do get adopted out. So um, a lot of it has to do, I think that was one of the really good things that um, that the pandemic was able to bring about in, in, in shelter, in the shelter system. So yeah, well, and even then, like, rescues will still complain oh yeah absolutely and it's like how dare they not take and but the thing is it's so crazy to me that rescues will push this narrative of like Mm -hmm. don't take anything to the shelter because it's going to get euthanized at the door Mm -hmm. yet blame the shelters for being overpopulated or being you know so quick to to euthanize pets and 
they're worse than worse off than the pets because at least the shelter does like free adoptions or they'll um you know they'll uh they'll do low cost adoptions and, and things like that mm-hmm. and, and all the pets go out fixed and vaccinated for yeah. the most part uh, but the shelter the 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 rescues are like, oh, we're so full. We can't, we can't take, we can't intake anymore unless you give us money to cover all the costs that yeah. you're doing for surrendering this pet. Yeah, like, and and I, you know, I'm always so frustrated with rescues, um, and not all of them. Like, there's some really great ones out there that you know they push a very positive narrative about people, and those are the ones that I can really appreciate because we're not making villains out of pet owners and we're trying to be a resource and we're, we're there to help them. But like, like I mentioned, I think a little bit before, but like it kills me when rescues are judging owners. Oh, they had to surrender because they can't afford a vet bill. And then the next day, this same organization is like, we can't afford Fluffy's surgery. We need all of your donations so that way we can cover it. Or they'll they'll see they'll put a a, a thing on online like oh this dog has seventy two hours to live, mm-hmm. give us all the money so we can pull this dog. It's yes. like do you really care about this dog dying? Because if you did, like if it was that serious for you, you would pull yes. it and then. Yeah, it it kills me, and I yeah, like I get so frustrated and. Uh, that's why I, like, started separating rescue from, like, my personal Facebook because it's just too much. Yeah. <laughs> I get and so frustrated. I, 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 it's so crazy, but I hate that so many people with good intentions and such good hearts, because a lot of these people, like, that are in rescue, they have really good hearts and they come from a good place, but are just either so stuck in their ways of everybody has to be like me or you're not worthy or everybody has to give the care that I expect or they're not worthy. Mm. And and it sucks because they could be doing, putting all that effort that they do into like, you know, shaming people for not being able to, you know, give their pet $60 bags of food. Yeah. Uh, when they could be really... A strong ally with the shelter and say, hey, yeah. you know, you guys are full. Like, let me see if I can get some of these pets yeah. through networking out. Or let me see if I can get some of the fosters that I have mm-hmm. out. But Yeah, like, I, I, it, it kills me and it's frustrating because I wish, my favorite wish is that rescues can work with both shelters and people. And the goal is that owners can keep their pets... If they're able to, whether that is support from a rescue or the shelter by means of, you know, food, like a pet pantry, um, veterinary care, affordable, accessible veterinary care is important. And then if in the event that the owner still can't have the pet, because, you know, we're also coming into a big housing crisis, like that is going to start happening. And like, and this is, you know... (laughs) a little close to home for you and I apologize <laughs> but like these things happen and what would be great is if like okay the owner can't take it are there resources that rescues or people can foster and if not what is the next step for that owner like where where can rescues and shelters help this owner and a lot of people don't don't have that ability and like it would be great if municipal shelters 
had that. And then, you, you know, like in my head, it's a lot of, you know, on a side note, like a whole bunch of liability issues to have an owned pet there. But are there resources out there, groups that have figured this out, like how people who are in these housing crises can have temporary foster care for their pet and then retain ownership afterwards? Or, you know, or, okay, now we've exhausted all options. Now the pet has to go into the shelter. How can a rescue support the shelter being like, okay, you're about to take, you know, know, 20 cats. Like SBC just took like 20 or 30 cats. As a rescue, how can I help support the shelter so that way there is less euthanasia? How can I support the shelter so that way these animals have a live outcome? Like, what are the next steps? And instead of a rescue gets so inflated with their ego and is just like, well, I'm going to only save the animals because they asked me nicely or because that fits the profile I want. Like, my favorite wish is that rescue shelters and the public are all able to work together because this is not caused by anybody other than our society like what we have deemed important in our society and owners you know they have they are hit with a lot of things there's financial reasons there's housing reasons there's health reasons health reasons are a huge one you know there is life happens like life happens like Pets who have can or people who have cancer have pets, and then they're in chemo, and they're like, "We can't care for this pet anymore. Like, what am I supposed to do with it?" Like, these are all things that, yeah, ideally everybody has a plan for, but life also hits. Like, some people like they die in car crashes, and then they have no plan for their kids. Like, they're human children, and yet we expect more of our adopters that they have to have a plan for their pets. And while I would love everybody to have a plan and a backup and a backup backup, but and I think that's not realistic. I think it's it's crazy that the shelter gets such a bad rap for mm-hmm. for they're basically the scapegoat for Absolutely. all the the human issues that that people have. Right, uh, the shelter was never meant to house pets and and mm-hmm. euthanize pets, and I don't think anybody in their right mind goes to a shelter and, and says, I want to work here just so I can euthanize pets. I want to work here just so I can see yeah. these kennels come in and then, you know, get filled with pets that are never going to find a home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not a fun situation for people that work at the shelters. And then you get rescues that kind of aggravate the situation even worse because they're telling everybody that all these dogs and cats are going to be euthanized at the door and that the shelter staff doesn't care about these pets mm-hmm. and that they keep them in these crazy situations and it's worse being in the shelter that they should have just left them in the streets because at least they would have had a chance for somebody to find them and not get euthanized. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, the reason why we have shelters being overcrowded and stuff like that, it's, it's, not, it's not because the shelter created that situation. It's, you know, it's just the fact that there's not enough space for the pets that are coming in because we don't have support for people that want to keep their pets, but can't. Mm -hmm. And we don't have enough access to veterinary care for, for people that, you know, maybe have a sick dog and they don't know what to do with. They can't afford the seven to $10,000 bill 
because who can nowadays, you know what I mean? Like yeah. an and, ACL repair and a dog. I just heard that the quote for an ACL repair is like 15,000. When I was a tech at a specialty practice, it was about 5,000 per knee. So it has just about tripled. And that's insane to me. You know, we, there's a lot of issues and just like, you know, our societal issues as humans, like we don't have an immediate, you know, fix because it's, you know, there's, uh, there's so many different, you know, layers of it. It's not just like, yes. It's a very complex problem. Yeah, and, it is a very complex yeah, problem. Yeah, and if I could, I would totally be like, no, let's everybody have a pet. I remember when I was a kid, I would drive um, by and I would see like uh, empty yards. And when I was younger, I'd be like, that would be a perfect yard for a dog. Like, you should have a dog. And it never, like, ideally, I would love everybody to have a pet. And... But and, it, it's just, yeah. But one of the things that they were saying and one of the, the topics that we discussed at the, uh, at the conference that we had is that, you know, eight out of ten Americans have a pet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And it's, it's not that there's not a lot of people not having pets. And if you think about, you know, eight out of ten people and only one percent end up in the shelter. And a lot of the sh- shelters, through the work that they're doing are increasing their live release rates as yeah. well. Um, you know, we, we are slowly but surely attacking the problem and uh, making things better. And I, I, I hate to, like, really villainize rescues, but a, a lot of the problem does come from the narrative that rescues push out there. Like, nothing's getting done and euthanasia is higher than ever and Mm. like all these people are surrounding their pets it just makes it kind of worse because rather than you know highlighting a lot of the great stuff that's coming out of shelters and a lot of the great work that's being done by a lot of different organizations that are creating uh trying to help create a lot more access to care a lot more support for people that own pets and a lot more um you know adoptions and finding people the right pets uh, they focus strictly on this cat, you know, has all these medical issues because their owner dumped them at 14 and mm-hmm. now nobody cares about him and he's going to be euthanized tomorrow. Give us your money. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's it's easy yeah. to raise money for your rescue when you highlight the negative stuff and pull at people's hearts. But I I hope that more of the work that is being done for good um starts being highlighted and a lot of this and people start seeing through this whole pull at your heartstrings with all these like hurt kittens and and stuff Mm -hmm. like that Um, yeah you know i i also do not want to villainize rescues um i can appreciate that rescues have worked extremely hard during the pandemic uh when shelters closed their doors rescues were like okay let's figure this out i think that in animal welfare, in veterinary medicine, burnout is really high. And it is from putting so much of yourself into these animals, into your organization, into your work, that I think that um, what we're seeing now and what happens is that, you know, as people get burned out, their views are like, you know what, I'm not even going to mess with people who do this because this is what happens. And it's purely anecdotal, but for some, you know, for some rescues, it's it's a lot, and like I see a few rescues right now on my 
on my Facebook that I'm just like, oh, they're struggling. They're gonna, that's a lot for them. And they're, they're, it's, they're, their rescue is going to close. And well, it, I can say like from personal experience, it gets to you being in a constant state of, of stress, of stress yeah. and panic and, you know, being exposed to all these graphic images and cats mm -hmm. dying all the time. It's like, dude, I remember coming home from work on a very hard week and just breaking down in tears because you can, you can only do so much and you care so deeply about these animals and you want to make things better for people. But when you only focus on the negative stuff, it just, yeah. it's such, it's such a emotionally fat, fatiguing thing where, you know, you do get compassion fatigue. And I, I really did, you know, when I, when my son was born, I just could not handle dealing with so much of this crazy negative stuff and then you know when my son was born it was a complicated birth and we had a lot going on so I was like there's no way I'm going to be able to deal with both of these things together um and I had to step away and I I'm really really glad that I stepped away for um for the time that I did because it gave me a lot more clarity on you know what I was wanting to accomplish with the work that I was doing in rescue what what I was doing wrong, what things I could change. And it opened up my perception to, you know, what, what the issues really were that I was trying to, trying to tackle. And it, I think it made me realize that a lot of the work that needed to be done was not necessarily in rescue, but, you know, supporting the people that don't need rescue. Yeah. So that they don't ever have to use rescue to to kind of bail them out or or, or help them right like, and this is the, and I think that's why I get so hyped about the work that we do because I I see like the work that I wanted to be doing and this is what we are doing and it's it's so awesome that you know now basically go from the negative stuff to being able to highlight a lot of the really positive stuff that, that we, we are, are able to, to start doing. And, you know, maybe even through the work that we do influence some of the, the rescues that, you know, I've been in contact with and having them see like, Hey, you know, this is a better way of doing stuff, or this is a different way that's going to create a lot more positive outcomes for, not only the pets, but the people that own the pets, you yeah. know? Yeah, you know, I, I um, <clears throat> so when I started Paw Mission back in 2017, um, it was actually because I was very, um, I, I wouldn't say jaded. I was like, I was frustrated. I felt after working, I worked in a high volume span neuter organization, um, SNP LA for uh, seven years. And I ended my time there as their director of operations. And we spayed and neutered between 20 and 25,000 animals a year. And that was huge. That was, I felt, really helped um, Los Angeles. But my frustration was, is I don't think it is only spay and neuter that's going to fix this. 
I don't think that it is only rescue that is going to fix this. And so when when my board of directors and I started Paw Mission, it was on the premise that we provided services that we felt would encompass all of the aspects that we need to change animal welfare. And that is affordable, accessible veterinary care, that is humane education, and that is, you know, innovative adoptions and open adoptions. And we do all of that. Yeah, so, um, like I said, a lot of this work that we're um, doing with the organization is so important. I think it's it's really, there's a shift in the animal welfare slash rescue world. Um, and I think a lot more people are starting to see that, you know, what we were doing, you know, back in the day may have worked for some extent or probably is not working because obviously we still, you know, 20 years later still have the same problems mm-hmm. that we did 20 years ago, right? So being able to really create, I think, resources for people to care for their pets rather than judging them for not being able to give them the care that we think they deserve is is much more of an important mission than you know, what we've been doing. So, um, that's kind of what I, I think what we, we're looking to do with, with our organization. And I, I feel like we're really on the right path. We have the vision of what we want to do that, you know, starting from the, from the get go, you know, even though I just joined not too long ago from the get go, I know that that, that was the, the mission. And I think now the climate in the animal welfare world and, rescue world kind of supports that a lot more than it did back probably when when Paw Mission started so oh yeah yeah definitely like I still I you know when we first started like it was still very old school animal sheltering um and we just started to see more changes like with best friends with American Pets Alive and I, I you know I really do think that the way that animal sheltering, uh, animal welfare, like we're moving a little bit more into present day. And part of that, I think, is because we are starting to hear more voices, not just wealthy white people and their opinions. Like we are listening to community members, people who need the help. And, you know, we went to the conference in in New Orleans, um, which was the, what was it? It was the... Humane Society of the U.S., sorry. Oh, yeah. I was like, what? I, I, like, see their logo. I just couldn't remember their name. Uh, so, the, so the HSUS put on a conference, and, you know, it was so much more about meeting the people who actually live in the areas that were having trouble and figuring out from them, like, what it is that they need, not what we, we believe that yeah. they need because we don't know... We don't know if they're struggling, like we the reservation dogs. We don't know that they don't want them ID'd or to be owned. Like these are community dogs. Like we don't need to put what we believe onto these communities. And I think that the work that we're going to be seeing is so much more powerful because we're not listening to people who think they know best. We're actually going to be listening to people 
who know what they need and they don't need you to fix it for them. They need the resources to fix it themselves. And so I think that it's going to be very powerful moving forward in animal welfare. And, you know, there's groups and organizations, you know, CARE. Um, there, I think that the, we, they had a conference last October out in Philadelphia and it was empowering voices of the community. And that was such an uplifting, wonderful, you know, um, thing I went to. It was like kind of like a conference, but not, it was like maybe a hundred people, 200 people. So it was pretty small and man, it was really, I felt very life changing. And then we go to like HSUS and then best friends conference is another one we're going to be heading to. And, you know, we're meeting all of these people that have boots on the ground knowledge of how to create change within communities. And quite frankly, those are the people we need to help not or not even help, those are the people we need to listen to, not the people that are coming from affluent areas or areas that don't have these problems that are saying, as this privileged person, I believe that this is what you need to fix your problem. And, you know, we got to stop being so arrogant. And Absolutely. And, and again, you know, just being, coming from the Latine community of, you know, little resources. I can mm-hmm. I can say that for years, this is where we needed to be moving mm-hmm. towards. Absolutely. You know, um, there's not a lot of people in the Latine community or in the communities that I grew up in that thought that they were hurting their pets by, you know, not giving them the $60 bag of food or, you know, not not being able to basically make them indoor outdoor outdoor pets right um it was it was only until somebody from rescue came and told them hey you're wrong you're mm-hmm. hurting this pet you're doing this and then you, they a lot of these people a, a lot of people in my community they feel very strongly about you know, the way that they take, take care of, of their pets. And if they feel like they're not going to be able to take care of their pets, they'd rather give them up to mm-hmm. somebody that's going to be able to take care of their pets, right? So they, it's a lot of, the, a lot of the, the misconceptions that are being placed in these communities come from people that are not even from these communities. Yes. So um, I'm and glad. I, and I would like to add that my cats have never been overweight. Uh, when there is... A, you know, an issue with obesity and pets here in the U.S. Um, my cats have never been obese. Um, they have been slender. They have a great body score. And they have never been overweight. And I'm not saying that it's total... Like, we free feed. Uh, I'm not... <laughs> I don't portion out my cat's food. They yeah. totally free feed. Um, and my 14-year-old looks great. My 7, 8-year-old... Pretty Belle, she looks wonderful. My kitten, she looks a little bit chubby, but that's because she's not, she doesn't know moderation quite yet. But um, I like, I think that you know, you know, we perceive things differently, and I think as we explore that in this podcast, and we talk to different cult, we we, we want to know about different cultures, absolutely, and yeah. I, I want to know how that is impacted. Like I always tell people, you know, Doctor C, I think he's with Hope for Paws now. He um. He's uh, French, and he came from France, and he was like, I am never going to own a cat in the U.S. 
They can't go outside. They get overweight here. They always have diabetes. And he was just like, in France, I never see that because they don't have coyotes and they are, I guess, wherever he was from, it was more um, rural, like less city. And he was like, all our cats are outside. Like nobody has solely indoor cats. Like everybody is outside. Yeah. We, there's cats on the street and they're all super healthy weights and He's like, here in the U.S., every other cat I see is fat. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's about right. And so, like, you know, learning what other communities, other cultures, other people are, you know, what they have seen, what works for them. And I, I think that'll be really great to kind of view and see. And, and I think it's really important to note that to this day, there is no governing body Mm-mm. in the for rescues that says... This is the standard for adoption. This is the standard yep. for really any rescue that you encounter is going to go based on what the governing body of that rescue believes. It's mm-hmm. not really a set standard of care. Right. It's it's basically this is what I think you should do uh, regardless of what you want to do with your pet. If you're not going to do it my way, then basically you're not getting one of my, one of my mm-hmm. pets that I'm supposedly rescuing, right? So, um, again, it's, it's really imposing your views onto the ownership of this pet onto somebody else, right? That may not necessarily be one from your same culture, from your same, you know, level of access to things and affordability of things either to, to those people, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think... Animal care, animal welfare, it's very nuanced. And when people look at it through just like a very singular lens, like that's where we do people and animals a disservice. And so, yeah, like I'm I'm excited to see how this, how the podcast goes, how people kind of react to it. Like, and kind of like what I would really love to gain from it is more acceptance of people. And the different types of families there are out there. Like, we place working cats. And these are feral cats that nobody can handle. And people are yet are adopting. Yes, let me absolutely adopt two grouchy cats that will never let me touch them. I want that. And yeah. there's really great people out there that That's they want so them. That's so awesome. Like... And they're like, yes, sign me up for more, man. And yet... <laughs> It's like we're running out of cash. Yes. Like, I'm like, okay, we got to go get more ferals from the shelter. And it's such like, uh, yeah, like I wish that more people would allow people to adopt pets. And, you know, yeah, like I I really am excited for the podcast and how it kind of shapes. And we would love to hear from people on what they want to kind of hear from it. And like maybe a culture that you think is interesting that really is predominant, like, I'm from SoCal, so Mexican household over here, like, I don't, I haven't really moved far from LA out to Yucaipa, but that's as far as we've gone, so um, knowing, you know, what else is out there, what other communities have a huge impact. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's crazy, like, I'm basically from SoCal, like, born, raised, and it's never, I've never had to deal with taking my dog out in the snow for, mm-hmm. yeah. for their daily walks or, you know, it's raining for a week and what do I do with with my pet, you know? So even within 
the United States, hearing other people's perspectives and how they care for their pets and what some of the challenges are for them. You know, we we live in a very small part of the United States. Very small. Mm-hmm. So, and our climate, you know, we're known for having good weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say it's a good weather tax and why everything's so expensive here. <laughs> but, um, again, uh, it's there's so much that goes into animal care, animal rescue, and, you know, maybe we do only have the perspective of how rescues operate out here um, yeah. and not... And it may not be the case in other in other states where rescues are more, um, you know, open to adopting out. But uh, the, I think this is that's what this podcast is really about. It's just exploring all the all the different perspectives from different walks of life, different you know uh, parts of the country, parts of the world, and seeing what. Um, what animal care looks like and what animal welfare uh, looks like in those parts of the world. So I'm excited about having some really great conversations and learning some really great things. Yeah, and I would say one thing before we head out, like for everybody listening, remember, like this lovely lady from the PTA said, was that there is a very thin line between being an advocate and being an adversary. And... Once you cross that line, it's difficult to really create change that you want. When you're an advocate for something, you are, you know, exposing, or not exposing, if you are an advocate, you're expressing and demonstrating the positives of any said outcome that you're looking for. Whereas you're an adversary, you're going to be fighting up against a brick wall because a lot of people are exactly that way. And so I would say just be cognizant, be aware that you, that there is a very, very fine line between being an advocate and an adversary. And here at Paw Mission, we would like to be an advocate. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, like I said, that's why I am so hyped and so proud of the work that we do, because I feel like we really focus on removing barriers for people to adopt. And I would love for all of our adopters to see us as a resource and, you know, allow us the opportunity to, to help them if they ever find themselves in need. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's, you know, what advocating for animal welfare is, not judging people because they have a hard situation or a hard time with something. So, um, yeah. super exciting. All right. Well, I think we had a really good conversation and I think this is a really, really good intro and a start to our podcast. I'm excited Mm -hmm. um, to see some other people come in and kind of, you know, see how our perspectives are going to change or, you know, how other people's perspectives maybe will change from the conversations that we have. So um, it's exciting and I look forward to the next one. Yeah. Yes. Thank you again for tuning in and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye.